began this journey in Unplugged um, because I admitted that I was a phone addict. Uh, I looked at my phone way too often, went to it all the time, uh, and I realized, man, I got a problem with this, so I got to do something about it. Um, so I did a lot of research over the past couple of months and exploring God's word and finding out, man, what does he have to say about this? And out of that, I just felt like God was nagging at me, man, you got to start talking about this. So uh, that's what we've been at. Really, it's, it's a series about how to recover real life in a world full of distractions and devices and online connectivity that's just constant barrage uh, in your face all the time. So that's what it's been about. Um, the first couple of weeks, three weeks ago, we talked about character development and how to actually say no to some things because man, if you're like me, I got to the place where I was like constantly saying yes. It was like notification, whoop, you know, boom. I'm, I'm responding to that notification right away. And like, and, and thinking to myself, man, if someone texts me, I got to respond to that text within just a couple of seconds, you know, or we're no longer friends anymore, you know? So how do you say no to something that's lesser in order to say something yes to something greater, you know? Because in reality, we're right where you are right now, for some of you sitting in the seats and some of you watching online, like this is the best we got. It's not being disconnected out in some online worlds, you know, connecting with someone who's not right in front of you. It's right here, right now. So the big question was like, man, how do we be fully present and engaged right where we are? So we, caught, we talked about character development. We talked about real rest too, because with the busyness and the hecticness of life, like all of us in this room would probably admit we're way too busy. We're way too busy. But our phones leave us so that there's zero margin in life. I mean, the, the stats of people who go to bed with their phones and wake up with their phones, it's the last thing they check and the first thing they check in the morning, like it, it's off the chart. It's somewhere between 70 and 85% of people go to bed with their phone and wake up with their phone. So all margin in life, I mean, even at grocery store checkout lines and at the dentist, like wherever it is, we're constantly connected and we're not giving our minds and our spirits, our souls, the kind of rest that we crave. It's no wonder we're exhausted. So we talked about deep rest. We also talked about deep work last week uh, and, and how a lot of the distraction that we bring into our work, constantly multitasking all day long, going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. We think it's productive being multitaskers when in, in actuality, it's, it's taking away from the kind of deep work that God has called us to. And whether you like your nine to five job or not, God has called us to be right where we are, wherever we are, for his glory and his purposes. And the cool thing about that is your boss for your nine to five is no longer your boss. God's your boss. And when he's your boss, you can transform any work environment. You can be fully engaged, fully present to do the kind of work that he wants you to do to transform this world. So that's where we've been over the past couple of weeks. Today, we're going to talk about loneliness and friendship. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. This is one of the big things that led me to this whole study to begin with. We're dealing with an epidemic of loneliness in our culture. It's not hard to see it, but there is a vast, deep epidemic of loneliness. It doesn't matter if we now can be connected with someone across the world or across the country. I love my Skype app. I can talk to my sister on FaceTime who's out in Colorado. I can talk to my friend Prashan who's out in Sri Lanka. But sometimes that constant connectivity has disconnected me from the people that I'm with right now. I mean, if we were to go around the room right now and online even asking you, like, how many people in your neighborhood do you really know? And how many people in your workplace do you actually, actually know? Like, like your coworkers, but do you know them? My, uh, my guess is that number's probably a little lower than we wanted to. So here's a couple of stats. Uh, 
just talking a little bit about what the reality is here in America and abroad. Uh, in the UK, and sometimes I like understanding a little bit where the UK is because Europe usually culturally precedes where we're going. So when we understand where they're at, we can kind of foresee a little bit of where we're headed. Uh, in the UK, 60% of 18 to 34 year olds say that they feel lonely. 60%. Now, in America, 46% of the entire population said that they feel lonely regularly. This is a study that was done by an organization called Cigna Health uh, in, in which they explored, I think, over 22,000 people. Um, but they, they were saying that 46%, that's almost half of Americans that regularly feel lonely. In that, they found that one in four Americans rarely or never feel as though there are any people who really understand them. They don't feel understood a quarter of our population. Only 53% of Americans have meaningful in-person interactions on a daily basis. That's staggering to me. Over half of our population that feel like they don't have a meaningful interaction with another human being on a day-to-day basis. And then trends actually show that these feelings of loneliness actually increase with a decrease in age. So the younger you are, the more lonely you feel. That's where the trends are going. Almost 50% of younger people between the ages of 18 and 22 constantly feel lonely. Now, the crazy thing about loneliness is it's a very subjective feeling, you know? If you feel lonely, that means you are lonely, <laughs> uh, that if that feeling is happening. And, and, the, and the crazy thing, too, about this is, like, it doesn't matter whether you're popular or whether you have money or whether you are even really good at social skills. None of those things in and of themselves actually cures loneliness, Studies go across the board and and it says beauty, power, fame, money, popularity, great personality and social skills. None of those actually eliminate loneliness. So as I was studying this, this is fascinating and you can actually go and examine it as well. And I'm going to do some more research into this too. But one of the things I came across was someone was saying that loneliness as a feeling, as a chronic widespread epidemic is more of a modern reality. It wasn't always like this. Here's here's how it works. You ready? Back in the day, before the Renaissance period, most people grew up in small, tight-knit communities of about maybe 50 to 150 people. That was where reality was for most people. They knew those 50 to 150 people, and that 150 to 50 people, they knew them as well. They were pretty tight-knit. They they belonged in there. And sure, you might have had a few people that felt lonely occasionally, but it wasn't the widespread chronic loneliness that we feel. Now, when the Renaissance came, there was a hyper-attention on the individual. All of a sudden, the individual mattered more than the collective community. And with the Protestant work ethic that emphasized individual responsibility, even more, it was, man, it was all about the individual and not about the community. And then you add the Industrial Revolution on top of that, and people were suddenly pulled out of their small, tight-knit little communities there, and they were pulled into factories. And with the factories gave rise to major cities, and with major cities, longer commutes. And the isolation just started to grow. And as the isolation started to grow, the loneliness and the feeling of loneliness started to increase. Now, I did some research on our average day commute here in Nashua. Any guesses? Uh, About 25 minutes is the average commuter. When, When leaving Nashua and going to work, you're commuting about 25 minutes there and 25 minutes back. That's the average. If you're traveling to Boston, and some of us travel to Boston, It gets horrific. Uh, In fact, Boston ranks last in uh, city commutes during rush hour. That's how bad Boston is. Thank you, Boston. Way to go. So good. Um, But with the commuting, just think about what the breakdown, I mean, how this has happened. 
going from home to work now is a complete isolation time period. And not only that, but the people that you work with are probably nowhere near where the people that you live. Increasing loneliness and isolation. And we've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks, but when we think about online connectivity, people check their phone on average as often as four to six minutes, every four to six minutes. And they consume digital media up to five and a half hours or 10 hours a day, even more than that if you're talking about teenagers. When we think about the disconnection from a face-to-face, long-term relationship where people feel mutually understood and, and known, it is not the natural gravitational pull anymore. Before the Renaissance, it was something that just happened. It was automatic. And now we're at the place where it has to be intentional. It has to be because the gravitational pull is loneliness. So the big question for us today is what do we do about it? If this is what we're feeling, if, and, and honestly, if this is what we're experiencing even in our own neighborhoods and our workplaces, what do we do about it? How do we break this and actually start putting patterns and rhythms in our life where we're really developing real friends? Okay, so here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs today. And because we're going to be kind of scattering around, most of this is going to be up on the screen, okay? We're going to be uh, kind of ranging from Proverbs 17 to about Proverbs 29. So I don't want you guys to be racing through your Bibles. You can go ahead and look it up on your own afterwards. Uh, But that's a majority of where we're going to be today. We're actually going to be in Proverbs next week as we explore the difference between information and wisdom That's going to be a whole other subject. It's going to be great. But for today, we're going to talk about friendship and loneliness. And what do we learn about what God has to say in developing real, real relationships? So here's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about the uniqueness of friendship. Not just connections, but the uniqueness of friendship. We're going to talk about how friendships are discovered. Not just made. You can't just make a friendship. It has to be truly discovered but then not only discovered, they truly have to be made as well. They need to be forged and built and, and really uh, uh, developed after you discover them. But then the last thing is really going to be how do we get the power to really develop real friendships. I'm deeply indebted to one of my heroes, Tim Keller, on this. He preached a message years and years ago that touched on a lot of this stuff. And so uh, I'm in, indebted to him for sure on this. But here's where we're going to be. Proverbs 17, 17. Here's where we're going to start. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, this was scandalous back in the day to suggest that a friend was more important than a brother. This is what he said. A friend loves at all times and a brother was born for a time in adversity. This is what he's saying. When tough, when tough times comes, sometimes like uh, often family comes into the mix. When, when you lose a loved one, some sort of a family member comes, like they, they die. You, like you, you see almost a family reunion happening, right? When times get tough, like automatically family come into the picture and that's when, when you know, when they, they start trying to care for you. And for some of us in this room, I know that's not the case. But what he's saying is back in that day, family would come when times were tough. But only maybe when times were tough. I mean, anybody ever been to a family reunion or, or you went to the death of a, a, of a relative and it just was awkward? You're hanging around with family? What he's saying is that friends are actually more valuable than that. Because family members might come in when, it, when it's difficult. But friends, true friends, they love at all times. They love at all times. There's a constant thing about that. Now, 
This was scandalous because back in the day, um, family and how you interacted with family really trumped everything. It had everything to do with your social standing, with your uh, income, with the way that you uh, were perceived by other people. When you interacted with family um, and you had a good standing with family, you were just well-liked all around the board. But what he's saying is that we actually have to value friendships, deep friendships, even more than family. Now, um, Solomon was the one who's writing these Proverbs and his dad, King David, had a relationship, a friendship with a guy that maybe it might go down as one of the best friendships in all of the Bible. It's an amazing story. If you want to learn about it, uh, check out 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19. Um, But David understood that friendship, real friendship, true friendship was actually more valuable than family because, check this out, God wanted to anoint him king. When, when, he wanted to, when, when God wanted to anoint him king, there was another man that was king at the time, King Saul. Um, but when uh, the prophet showed up at David's house to go find David to anoint him king, guess what his dad did? <laughs> and the, a whole bunch of different brothers that he said uh, he had, he looked at the prophet and said, hey, check these guys out. There's got to be one in there that, that you're going to anoint king, right? And the prophet went through all that list of brothers there, didn't find the one guy that God wanted. And he's like, hey, do you have another son? And the dad's like, oh, yeah, but he's out in the field. He's with the sheep. You know, it's like, go ahead and call that guy too. And that was, that was David. And that, that was the moment where David was anointed king. And so in that moment, David's like, yeah, thanks a lot, dad. Uh, love you too. You know, like he had a couple of moments that where family didn't exactly show up. Even when he was going to go to the, the battle that most people know when they, when they hear about David, uh, when he battled this giant Goliath, even in the middle of that, his brothers were like, what are you doing here? Why don't you go back to the sheep? And David's like, no, I think we, get, we better do something about this. So in that moment, when David beat uh, Goliath, he had a major military victory. It was then that he got all the fame and the prestige and the acclaim that everybody, you know, had towards David. Um, but even then, he didn't understand what friendship was. It wasn't found in family and it wasn't found in prestige or all that military might. It was found in this one guy named Jonathan. You see, Jonathan saw something in David that went beyond the prestige and it went beyond the family. When, Dave, when Jonathan looked at David, he saw courage and he saw faith and he saw bravery and boldness that deeply resonated in Jonathan. The crazy thing was Jonathan was the son of the king at the time. But this is what Jonathan did. You ready? Jonathan in that moment, he goes up to David and he says, look, I want to be friends with you because I see something in you that I deeply admire. And I want to join with you and, and, and journey together. And, and he actually, and we'll, we'll read about this a little bit more in just a second, but he actually lowered himself to the point where he recognized David as his true king. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. In that moment, Jonathan actually lowered himself so that he could be friends with David and said, no, I'd actually rather follow you than you follow me. David understood something about friendships in that moment. And what he learned, uh, probably in what his son Solomon wrote about in uh, Proverbs 18.24, literally says, A man of lots of companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Look, just because you have a lot of people that you know in your life doesn't mean you actually have legitimate friends. Am I right about that? You could have a thousand Facebook friends and still not know anybody who really knows you or someone that you deeply know and have invested in. Just because you can text a dozen people today about anything doesn't mean that you've got a legitimate friendship. What he's saying here is that you could have a lot of companions and no friends. We've got to talk about the difference between just having a connection and a deep 
friendship. That's what David knew with Jonathan, even when it costs us and it cost Jonathan quite a bit. So here's the thing about friendship. Friendship may be one of the most valuable loves that we can ever experience on planet earth. And yet it is the least necessary. Think about that for a second. All of us, we belong to a family in one way or another, right? It is necessary to belong to a family. Otherwise, like you're not alive. It just, that's how it works biologically. We can get into that history lesson maybe next week or another, another time. Maybe not. That's super awkward. Anyway, um, look, it is the least necessary because you, you got to have a family. And then when you also think about romance, like romance is something that you can, you just like you easily fall into because it's a, this biological urge that you've got to have, you know, some sort of romance in your life. Like a lot of us are drawn to that. And I, I, I thought about it this way. When you walk into any sort of a store, Target, Costco, who are they marketing to? For the most part, like, are they marketing to friends or are they marketing to family and lovers? You know what I'm saying? You walk into Costco and instantly like you're seeing marketing for family and how you can make your home a better place and your kids happier and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and you, you've got the little watch or jewelry section that's like, man, get this and you're gonna be sweet with the ladies. Like, I mean, whatever it is, like we, we market to romance and we market to families. We don't market to friendship. There's few movies on friendship. There's a lot of movies on family and a lot of movies on romance, but friendship is not often promoted because it is the least necessary. Biologically, it's not something that we urge and, and kind of long for half as much as the other things. But maybe it's the most valuable. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, every other kind of love except friendship has some kind of biological or sociological engine driving it. They happen to you. In friendship, you have to be a free moral agent. Friendship is absolutely deliberate. Friendship is intentional and it stays intentional. You don't fall into friendship like you do love. Somebody falls in love, she fell in love, he fell in love. But when it comes to friendship, it's very, very deliberate. And I think he's absolutely right. And here's the crazy thing too, you ready? When busyness hits your life and you're constantly connected and you have no room in your schedule, which is the first love to go? Friendship. Isn't that true? For some of us in this room, the busyness of our life has squeezed out all margin and you have not made any time for real friends. I was talking with a buddy even this week he was telling me that as he's scoped out the course of his life, he's not sure he's ever had real friends. He's known a lot of people and people who've kind of been intermittently there and out and in and out, but did he ever have any real friends? Maybe some of us in this room, maybe some watching online, you're thinking, man, have I ever actually had someone who is always there? A friend chooses to know you. It is incredibly rare, incredibly valuable, but ex extremely deliberate. Now, the second thing that we know about this too, though, in looking at some of this stuff, is that friendship is discovered. It's not just deliberate, it's, it's discovered. And in this way, when someone chooses to know you, you know them because there's something that you connect with in them that, that, that causes you to be like, man, I want I want to do life with that person. So uh, in the passage above where it talked about how friendship is pleasant, uh, I'm going to read that for you in just a second here if I could find it. It is not in my notes here. Um, okay, let me see if I can find this real quick. Okay, ready? 
Proverbs 27, 9 through 10, it says, Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Talks about friendship being pleasant. Now, the crazy thing about pleasant is uh, back then the Hebrew word actually talked about it as something being sweet. Pleasant and sweet. The, the Hebrew word there kind of rang of the same uh, meaning there, pleasant and sweet. Uh, and back in the, the first century, um, we didn't have the kind of sweetness to be able to, to make um, all the food that you eat sweet all the time. They didn't have sugar. They didn't have natural, you know, sweeteners like that. Like when you came across something that was sweet, it wasn't something that you made. You couldn't just make anything sweet. You had to discover it. Sweet was something that you came across. It wasn't something that you could just force into it. And when he's talking about friendship, he's talking about how friendship is not something that you can just force. And maybe for some of us in this room, you've tried that. Didn't work out so well. You know, you showed up at a party and it's like, you ever had someone just be like, can we be friends? You know, like it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't just like, I want to be friends. You've got to be able to discover it because there's something about the mutuality of what they're all about and what they're passionate about that hits you in a deep level and says, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be friends with this person because there's something about their life that is sweet. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, that's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never have any. The very condition for having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. You know, like, I don't want to be about anything. I just want you to be a friend. Would you please be a friend with me? It doesn't work. He says it doesn't work. No friendship can arise in this, though affection may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. <laughs> I love that. Uh, those who have nothing, this is powerful, you ready? Those who have nothing can share nothing. And those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. David and Jonathan developed a friendship because they were both passionate about the same thing. They're both passionate, believing that there was a God in the universe who, who can actually change our circumstances and change our lives. They were both believing that he had that power. And so they walked into circumstances that were way above their control, believing that God had the kind of power to change outcomes. I mean, we read about David challenging the, the giant Goliath. Jonathan, he had an armor bearer that they looked at 30 guys who wanted them dead. And they're like, let's go take them. Two on 30, let's go. That they, they had that same level of courage. And when Jonathan, when Jonathan saw that in David, he saw in them a, a kindred spirit, a soul that he's like, man, I want to be friendships with you because I resonate with something that we are both passionate about. Friendship is discovered. And for some of us in the room, the big question is, man, what are you passionate about? <laughs> is there anything in your life right now that you are so passionate that when other people look at you, they mean like, man, I want to be like that person. Something bigger than yourself, not just about yourself, but something a lot bigger. Are you about something bigger than you? That's one of the first steps of friendship. Are you about something bigger than just you? Because those who have nothing can share nothing and those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Okay, so here's the question. If you, if you get to this place like me and you're asking, man, I want friends, <laughs> I want deep friends and not just connections, but real friendships. How do I do that? Let's say I discover somebody that I really deeply admire and I want to start forming friendships with them. What does that look like? They're not just discovered, they're forged and they're built, but what does that look like? So I want us to think about this and I'm like 
anti-acronym most of the time uh, because I think they're kind of cheesy and lame. But I came up with an acronym this week that I found super helpful for me uh, on developing real friendships, R-E-A-L, okay? Maybe this will be helpful for you. And this is all flowing out of what I was reading through in Proverbs, okay? The first R, if you're taking notes, the first R is that real friendships are regular. They're constant. They're constantly connecting in each other's lives. It says a friend loves at all times. No matter what season you're going through in your life, a friend is there. Now, you got to combine that with uh, the other Proverbs that, that says too much of you and he'll hate you. <laughs> so if you're constantly showing up at somebody's house, that ain't a good thing. We're not talking about that kind of constant. What we're talking about in regularity is actually the fact that you show up when they're at their highest high and you're also showing up in their lowest low and in the ordinary times and the boring times too. You are there for them in every kind of season. And there's some people in your life that'll show up when you make a victory because you're useful to them at that point. There's, there's some people who will show up when you're in your lowest of lows, but are there people who will actually just be with you when life is boring? Seriously, when you've got nothing to say and you've run out of all cleverness, do you, do you have anybody who's willing to just sit there in the boring with you? That's what a friend is all about. Now, in the digitally connected generation that we have, boredom and vulnerability are like they're the new curse words. Nobody likes boredom and nobody likes vulnerability. They will avoid it at all costs. And that's why we maybe uh, we go to our phones so often. Uh, I've been reading uh, studies and research talking about even the upcoming generations and especially the upcoming generations. Uh, they prefer texting over phone calls and face-to-face. Anybody ever like tried calling somebody and uh, only to have it go to voicemail and then have that person immediately text you back? That's super annoying, okay? Look, if I call you, please answer the phone call. Because in that phone call, you can actually read people. You can read emotions. You can read intonations in the voice. But people prefer texting over phone calls and face-to-face. Why? Because you can manage that. I don't know what the other person's going to say on the other side of the phone. I don't know what I'm going to get when I'm face-to-face with somebody. I mean, who knows where that's going to go? You feel out of control. And the crazy thing is that upcoming generations are actually, they prefer texting. Uh, I, I read even this, that uh, when it comes to dating in the teen scene right now, teenagers would rather see someone in school that they think is cute, go home and text them to start that relationship than they would actually be vulnerable and be like, look, uh, I think you're cute. Let's go out on a date. Why? Because the vulnerability of that possible rejection face-to-face is too much. They'd rather settle it over text. A friend is constant. It is regular. In the high seasons and the low seasons, in the boring and the vulnerable, in the ordinary, a friend is there even when it gets boring. But our aversion to real conversation is actually showing two things. It's showing that it's contributing to a sense of loneliness because when we're not vulnerable, we're disconnecting with other people. And second, it's showing that when we pursue friendships, we may actually not be pursuing friendships as much as using people for our own benefit. Think about that for a second. Is it possible that when you meet with the people that you meet with, you're actually not looking for real friendship, vulnerable conversation, all that, but you're actually meeting with them because they give you some sort of benefit to your life? Are you using the people around you? 
Do you, I mean, do you think about developing relationships with people in your workplace or are they just merely cogs that help you accomplish what you need to accomplish? Are you thinking about developing relationships with even the close circles that you have even in church here or are these people just, do they help you actually, you know, develop your relationship with God or make you feel good about your religiosity? Or are you actually developing relationships with people in this church? I mean, wherever you are, our temptation is to use people rather than to actually develop a relationship with them. I was thinking about this, like, you know, you got, we all have different friends. You got the friend with the nice house. You got the friend with the nice car. You got the friends that got the connections. And as long as you invite them to the party, they're probably going to invite the people that you need to hang out with. You know, you got the friend who can cover you for a meal uh, just in case you run dry one month. Like whatever it is, we've got a number of friends in our life. Like, like seriously, take inventory. Take inventory of the people around you and ask yourself, am I just using these people? I had, to, I had to really ask myself that, that question deeply this week because it's, it's a temptation for me as your pastor to just be like, I want to be friends with you so that we can accomplish church work together and not actually be your friend. And God's calling me out on that. Do we actually want to be friends with people or are we just using them? Now, the crazy thing is about the first century church is they were so regular in each other's lives because of what Jesus had done for them. It radically reoriented everything about their life, even at, the, at great cost. This is what it said in Acts chapter 2. It said, all the believers had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, which were their Sunday gatherings, basically, in the temple courts all together. They broke bread in their homes in group settings, like what we have midweek. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They were constantly involved in each other's lives and the highs and the lows. They were constantly meeting together, even at great inconvenience to themselves. They were spending money on each other. They were opening their homes and their time wasn't their own anymore. It, was, it belonged together because friendship mattered that much. That's what the power of Jesus and what he did for them really did. And so we had to ask ourselves this question, me and my wife this week, like what are some ways in which we're tempted to pull the fake card and not actually be friends. So ready? This is a, a test for men and a test for women. All right. I'm not qualified to talk for women. Okay. So I asked my wife on this one. Uh, she said, you know that you're actually ready for a real vulnerable relationship with another lady. If you're a lady. If you know that your first impulse in inviting somebody over isn't, man, I'm going to clean the whole house. I'm going to light a candle and I'm going to change my outfit maybe two or three times. You know, you're not ready for a real relationship if you invite somebody over and that's your first go-to. Now for guys, I was thinking about this. When you go to a party as a guy, what are like the two, top two things that you're armed with when you have a conversation with another guy? For me, it's like work success. I want them to know that I'm, you know, what I do and that I'm actually good at what I do. You, you, when you go to a party, like guys, they bring up these, these success stories or funny stories about work and like you, you want to feel good about yourself, about the work that you do. And the second thing is just humor. We can hide behind our work and we can hide behind our humor, guys, and not actually be really vulnerable and real with each other. Am I right? Friends, though, they're regular and they're vulnerable. They're willing to go there even when it's boring and you got nothing on the table of any use. So that's the first R. Real friends are regular in each other's lives. Second, they're E, emotionally tuned in. Ready? 
Proverbs 25, 20 says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is like one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You ever get that, friend? Someone who shows up and they're just like, life's awesome. And you're like, no, it sucks right now. Thanks a lot. Proverbs 26, 18 through 19 says, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Proverbs 27, 14 says, if anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Anybody hate morning people? Yes. All right, no, actually, I'm a morning person. I was that guy, okay? That was me. Growing up in high school, that was totally me. Every time I had a sleepover with other guys, it would be like five in the morning. I'd be like jumping on their bed, be like, wake up, it's morning. Be like, we hate you. So that was my life. Uh, But what he's saying is it's devastating to not be tuned in emotionally to your friends. That's devastating. It's like leaving someone out in the cold or inflaming a wound. And for some of us, man, we check in and we check out when it's convenient for us and our friendships. And when a conversation goes stale or boring, we just turn on our phone. Seriously. Like if you're in the middle of a dinner conversation and someone goes to their phone, you know in that moment what they're saying to you is, I'd rather be connected online than emotionally tuned into where you are right now. But a real friend is emotionally tuned in. And it happens through listening, through understanding, and deep, real empathy, okay? So I was researching about this. There's a young private school in America uh, that someone was researching, and it's a a highly uh, competitive school to get into. So you'd think that a lot of these students in middle school and high school would be the best and the brightest. And yet the professors, the teachers at this school are deeply concerned about these kids because they're finding that these kids have no idea how to listen to each other. No clue. They don't know what it means to really understand one another anymore. Uh, When they have friends, it seems to them like these friends are just an opportunity for broadcasting. I'm gonna share my two cents with these friends and then I'm gonna go check out on my phone and get the dopamine hits that I need uh, for affirmation and likes. And then I'm gonna check in with this person when they're useful to me, but then I'm gonna check out again on my phone when it's inconvenient for me. And they've stopped listening to each other. They've stopped the empathy, the deep need that we have to develop real relationships with with deep empathy. They know how to create websites, but they don't know how to listen to people anymore. Man, isn't our media training us for this too? I mean, you look at newscasters, what what do they do? They They lob bombs at each other without actually sitting down and trying to understand somebody first. We've got a deep empathy problem. Uh, But former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said that this is one of the best ways for us to start forming real relationships. It's the pathway to develop empathy. This is what he said. Ready? Um, So they they said, empathic relationships do not begin with, oh man, I know how you feel. It actually begins with the admission that you don't know how someone's feeling. And then you start on a journey at that point to try to figure out, man, what is it? How do, you, how do you feel? In that ignorance, this is what he says, in the ignorance, you begin with an offer of conversation. Man, tell me how you feel. And author Sherry Turkle uh, that went to some of this guy's um, lectures, she said this, empathy for the Archbishop of Canterbury, Williams, is an offer of accompaniment and commitment. And making the offer, I want to know you. I want to know where you're at. I love this. Making the offer actually changes you. Making the offer changes you. When you have a growing awareness of how much you don't know about somebody else, you begin to understand how much you don't know about yourself. 
but we become so full of ourselves that we don't listen to other people. We don't sit and actually explore them. We'd rather just, we'd rather impress our emotions and what we want broadcasting on other people rather than actually developing that empathy and listening to them. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I'm an optimist and I can have an optimist monster come out of me at times, okay? That's what I've labeled it now because it's a problem, all right? I've had some people in my life that are going through deep hurt and my go-to in that moment is like, ah, oh, man, it's gonna be great. And I seriously come in like the Hulk, like, you know, life is awesome. And it's awful. In that moment, what I do, and people have told me, I'm incredibly dismissive. Because I just invalidated whatever they were feeling in that moment because I felt uncomfortable with their hurt. And when I feel uncomfortable with someone's hurt, I have emotionally tuned out at that point because it is too uncomfortable, too inconvenient, too painful. I'd rather just live for me in that moment and the optimist monster comes raging. But real relationships begin with a deep empathy of being emotionally tuned in to the people around you and asking them, offering an invitation, man, tell me how you're feeling. For guys, it's really hard to be that kind of vulnerable, but I'm telling you, the pathway to real relationships is right there. Uh, University of Michigan researchers said that out of 14,000 students that they, they studied, um, over the past 20 years, there's been a 40% decrease in empathy among college students. 40% drastic decrease. And what they said was uh, that it was tied to a lack of eye contact. You can go research it for yourself if you want, but what they said was that empathy is actually activated when you look into somebody else's eyes and you can read where they're at. And students nowadays are not looking into each other's eyes as, as much as they're looking into phones and digital media and whatever else they want. There is, there, our heads are down as opposed to looking each other in the eye. We've got to develop empathy. All right, so we got, you got to be real by being regular, constantly involved in each other's life. You got to be emotionally tuned in and then you got to be A, accountable. Proverbs 27 says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. And 29.5, Proverbs 29.5 says, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. Sometimes we need to speak the truth to one of our friends and we don't do it because we're a coward. Real friends will tell you the truth. Real friends are accountable. <laughs> no joke, when I go to Starbucks and maybe Gary, you're watching right now, um, this is what happens. I got a friend of mine who will sit across the table from me and we're having a conversation um, and I watch him doing this, you know, as we're sitting across the table, like the whole time, nothing's hanging out of his nose, which means one thing, right? Something's hanging out of my nose. Okay, and so the whole conversation gets super awkward because he's doing this and I'm like, oh crap, like what do I do? Like, do I, do I try to pull whatever's out of my nose? Like, like, or do we just try to have this awkward conversation? Like maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. And it, as long as he does this, like it just gets super awkward, but he never tells me if that's the case, man. And Gary, I tell you right now, if you're watching bro, just tell me if something's hanging out of my nose because real friends will tell you if something's hanging out of your nose. They'll tell you if something's stuck in your teeth and if your zipper is wide open. That's what real friends will do. They'll tell you the truth, not because it's convenient, but because you need it. Flattering tongues don't do a whole lot for you. Truth 
sometimes just needs to be said. And for some of us, we're pursuing life in ways that's not going to end up well for us. We're pursuing some education or we're pursuing some sort of jobs that everyone else knows is not going to work out because we're not wired for that. We're not good at it. But we don't have the guts to tell someone you're headed for disaster right now. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your relationships are out of whack. The way you treat your husband, the way you treat your wife is not healthy right now. We don't have the guts to say it because ultimately we don't care about them enough. You ever had that? (laughs) Where like you walk into the bathroom and you're like, oh my gosh, my zipper's been down and nobody loves me. (laughs) All right, we'll move on from that. Um, So you gotta be accountable. You gotta be regular. You've got to be emotionally tuned into the people around you. (laughs) And you've also gotta be accountable. The last one here is L. A real friend lets you in, lets you in. You gotta be vulnerable. Proverbs 27, nine through 10 says, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes you, better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. I love that. Because for a lot of us, man, we, our go-to is family when we're, we're in a, when we're in a difficult spot. What, he, what he's saying there is that the vulnerability of actually pressing into a, a friend is actually going to be better for you than anything else. That the pleasantness of a friend, the sweetness of a friend actually springs from their heartfelt advice. When someone actually lets you in and gets vulnerable with you and shares with you their life journey and the ups and the downs so that they could spare you of some of the hurt in your life. Really pressing in in a vulnerable way, letting someone else in. I came across this one other story of a teenage girl who had just lost a boyfriend, a really painful experience for her. Um, And there was a friend across the table who was actually trying to console her. But she couldn't really console her because the other friend was just so locked into all the texts that she was getting about losing her boyfriend. She's saying, man, I'm so sorry. She's like, wait, 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 Uh, you know, so-and-so just texted me, so-and-so just texted me and is like constantly checking the text and she's not engaging in the person across the table from her because she's so caught up in the dopamine that she's getting in that moment, feeling like she's uh, she's loved, she's accepted, she's, you know, whatever it is. Like she's caught in that moment of just being so stuck on the phone rather than being vulnerable with the person across the table and it hit me, I know why. Because when you're hurting in that moment, you don't want to get another risk of the person across the table actually blowing it. We'd rather be controlled than vulnerable with the people across the table with us. We'd, I mean, when we get those dopamine hits of someone saying, man, I'm there for you, I love you, you know, it's gonna be okay, that's controllable on the device. The person across the table is not. But a real friend will let you in. You'll go there and risk the vulnerability because inside the vulnerability is more power and more love than you could ever dare dream. This is the paradox, you ready? Parents, (laughs) when your teenage kids go out, you're glued to your phone because you're worried about their safety. And then when they're home, you don't really connect with them. You're just constantly on your phone checking out. So Sherry Turkle said, this is our paradox when we're apart, hypervigilance on our phones. But when we're together, inattention. Why? Because of control and a lack of vulnerability. That's what it is. The dangerous part about all of this though is that loneliness can actually be self-sustaining. 
that when you've gotten into chronic patterns of loneliness, it actually can be self-sustaining because what, they've, what researchers have found out is that when you, when you get lonely, naturally on the inside of us, we want to protect from feeling any pain. And so when we're feeling that kind of pain and loneliness, we like, we retract and we cut ourselves off from other people around us. And so we can further isolate. So isolation and loneliness actually breeds loneliness and isolation. And in that moment, our brains actually hardwire, rewire to looking at things that are not threatening as if they are threats. When you're looking at someone's face and you're deeply lonely, they could be smiling, you see a frown. When someone waves at you, you're interpreting it like, oh, wow, like you're just putting me off, like... You're just waving at me. You're not coming to say hi to me. Like when you're deeply lonely, we can be rewired to actually perceive threats that are not there because we're so scared of vulnerability. And my, my challenge to all of us in this room is that we've got to be vulnerable. We've got to choose vulnerability in order to really engage in deep relationships around us. And if we do not, we're gonna be hardwired to increasingly be more and more set up for hurt. And the big question for us at this point is, for the friendships that you're looking for, are you willing to be that kind of friend first? Are you willing to be regular in someone's life? Are you willing to be emotionally tuned into where they are? Are you willing to be accountable to actually tell them the truth when they need the truth? And are you willing to actually let someone in your life? That's a tall order, guys. And the only way that any one of us can actually have the guts to do that, the willingness to jump in and actually develop those kind of relationships is if you understand the depth of the gospel. What do I mean by that? When Jesus came into this world, he expressed every single one of those. He was regular. God didn't dip out when we rejected him. No, God actually stayed in this world. And in his perfection, he chose, no, I'm going to be constant. I'm going to be regular with these people. I'm going to actually do life with them. I'm going to choose that kind of vulnerability. Jesus was willing to be a friend to us. He actually said, I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I'm going to call you friends because I want a relationship with you. Jesus was constant. He was regular in our life. But not only that, he was emotionally tuned in. In Hebrews, it says that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness anymore. No, Jesus became fully human. He was fully dialed into our experience. He knows the pains that we went through. He experienced hunger pains. He experienced isolation. He experienced the rejection that a lot of us have experienced when it comes to relationships that make us so scared of vulnerability. Jesus went through all of that. Why? Because you matter to him. And having a relationship with you was so precious to him that he was willing to be emotionally tuned in at a vulnerable level. He spoke the truth to us because we needed it, not because we felt good about it. And he let us in. Can you imagine the God of the universe let us in? How did he do all this? He died on the cross. The God of the universe became ultimately vulnerable by exposing himself on a cross, literally dying naked so that your sin would be eliminated. And just by faith in him, you could have a relationship with the God of eternity. That's the power for relationships. And until we get that, we will never be the kind of friends that we desperately long for in this epidemic of loneliness. So the, the practical steps for us who know Jesus is this. Invite someone to coffee this week. Just do it. Emotionally, vul vulnerably, invite someone to spend time with you. Just do it. If you're scared to death of it, good. Own that. Just do it anyway. Go to a group. This is what our groups are meant for. We have groups that meet midweek. I encourage you guys, if you're not a part of a group yet, go. Be a part of a group. Call someone. 
Just talk to them on the phone. Don't text them, okay? That's my challenge. Don't text anybody for the rest of today. Call somebody. Be emotionally tuned in to where they are. Invite someone to go to the party that we're throwing in the, the park this Friday. Come to our movie. Be vulnerable and invite someone to come with you to this movie. And then actually right after church today, if you're not doing anything, uh, we're going to be throwing a volleyball uh, gathering. And if you're terrible at volleyball, great opportunity to be vulnerable. Okay? If you get a spike to the head, well done. You just took step one in friendship. All right? No, <laughs> um, actually, we're going to have a picnic out in the park today um, just down the street here at Lions Fields. We're going to do volleyball and, and food. Uh, in fact, almost every Sunday that it's nice outside, we're going to have a volleyball net and a grill just so that we can develop relationships with each other. That's what we want this summer to be all about. So I encourage you guys to check that out. And then the last thing is serve with people. If you want a chance to really get to know other people and be vulnerable with them, um, accept an, off, an, an, an invitation to serve with people here at our church. We've got a lot of different ways you can serve with people. But don't let friendship be something that happens to you because it won't. You've got to go out and get it. And the only way that you're going to go out and get it is if you understand that God went out and got you in that kind of love. My prayer is that Nashua changes because of the friendships that we developed inside here and outside in our city. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for not treating us as we deserve and for becoming our friend. God, change our hearts and help us to be as vulnerable as you are with others around us so that we can be that kind of friend you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.